Welcome to this one-hour Bioneers Radio special, Leading from the Feminine, Keepers of the Cradle of Life. When I see the masculine and the feminine, I see two aspects of creation that cannot be separate. Masculine and feminine, they weave to each other. And that is what makes us to be even here, to exist and to be. I've spent years putting my masculine on a leash and saying dance. When I needed him to do something in the world. And I've spent time putting my feminine in a closet and saying, shut the hell up because it's not safe for you to be out there. And when you speak, people look at me funny. So one's been on a leash, one's been in a closet and they haven't met each other yet. Many, many devices have been used on the five-fingered ones to create the illusion of separation, but none has been more effective or longer running than the illusion of the war between the men and the women and the masculine and the feminine. The design is for these two aspects to work in functional polarity. And when we have that, then we have life. It's all alive. It's all connected. It's all intelligent. It's all relatives. Support for the Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature is provided in part by Organic Valley Family of Farms, funding also provided by a grant from the Park Foundation, and by the generous support of listeners like you. A conference producer began to notice that his esteemed speakers were saying something quite different in public from what they were saying to him in private around the kitchen table. In the safety and intimacy of the hearth, they dared to share what they really thought and what they were really feeling. They revealed their uncertainties, the awkward spaces of being in the not knowing. They bared their souls, showing their hearts, their vulnerability, their authentic selves. Just such a conversation took place at a Bioneers conference. The topic was leading from the feminine. The perspectives flowed from the biographies of three women coming from diverse multicultural backgrounds. Although their dialogue took place in an auditorium before a large audience, their responses were intensely personal, from the heart and from the hearth. What does it mean to lead from the feminine? What's the nature of the feminine? How does it relate to the masculine qualities embodied in both women and men? And how might diverse cultural perspectives offer valuable pathways to help us bring our masculine and feminine qualities into balance, both personally and societally. Join us for this one-hour special, a deep dive into the heart of the feminine with Nikki Silvestri, the African-American former executive director for Green for All and People's Grocery, poet Norris Benet from the Dominican Republic, and Pat McCabe, a Navajo teacher working on indigenous frameworks for gender and life. This is Leading from the Feminine, Keepers of the Cradle of Life. I'm Neil Harvey. I'll be your host. Welcome to this one-hour special, 
from the Bioneers. When it comes to the feminine, for me, the feminine is being and the masculine is doing. The feminine is the creation of the container and the masculine is the filling of the container. Nikki Silvestri is co-founder and CEO of Silvestri Strategies, a project design and management firm that works to support thriving communities, economies, and natural environments. So I, as an African-American woman, like black, I also feel like there's a, you know what, not as an African-American woman, as a human, I've been very interested in the dark and the light and know that that always travels through everything. So as a black woman, the dark side of the feminine for me is that my family, like many families, felt the impact of both the masculine and the feminine being taken from us. So I have a lot of very strong women in my family that couldn't soften and suffered as a result of it when it comes to health issues, um, when it comes to not being able to receive, when it comes to overgiving, when it comes to really having a lot of fear about creating the container because the container has been violated repeatedly. And the light side of the container and the feminine in my family is, and in my culture, are praying women. Just the way that when our children were being taken from us and our bodies were being taken from us and our men were being taken from us, we continued to have children and love and pray and be strong. Tanahishi Coates did some reading from his new book and I started shaking in the audience, like physically shaking. And one thing that came up for me was my inability to let my anger and my rage run through my body. And that that is also feminine, is being the vessel for all of it and letting it run through and not holding it. Just letting it run because it was that rage and it was that anger that got me here. Without that kind of raw fierceness, my people wouldn't have survived. And I need to honor and respect that rage, but also know when it is just to run through and not to be held. And that's the feminine. When I see the masculine and the feminine, I see two aspects of creation that cannot be separate. Masculine and feminine, they weave to each other. And that is what makes us to be even here, to exist and to be. Norris Benet is a visual artist, poet, dancer, and author. As a bilingual sociologist, she holds an honorary doctorate in counseling and philosophy. She was born in the Dominican Republic during the notorious reign of Rafael Trujillo. That was almost the bloodiest dictatorship that we have in Latin America. A very patriarchy dominated atmosphere. Trujillo actually was killed when I was six years old. And what really pushed 
everybody to that edge to kill Trujillo is because he killed three sisters. They called the three Mirabales, that there were three women who were fighting. And they called the butterflies because those women mark a moment in the history of the Dominican Republic like a sign that he crossed a line and he must be killed. In the midst of that regiment, there were these women who managed to be underground to a certain degree, I will say, to nurture life. So I grew up with a really incredible amount of women from my mother, my grandmother, my great-grandmother, my auntie, my great-auntie, who were the women who run the community, who were the women who bring the teachers, who were the women who were there to see what happening and how we can resolve it. The presence of men was very powerful, but those women, for me, were even more powerful than them. My auntie, for example, was the medicine woman of the community, and everybody respect her. Even the priest have to come to her. So it's a very interesting situation of power because in one way you have this dictatorship running and underneath you have those women who were doing this kind of work because in the way that that is what I'm here today, because them. And not only the women of my family, but the women who work in the community. So for me, the feminine aspect that has most touched my life has been the nurturer aspect or spirituality that those women carry, where they are not necessarily one God, but there is nature that really rules life and nurtures life. And for me, that has been the foundation that allowed me to grow in the middle of that kind of environment that I born and be willing to allow my rage, my anger, to move my life in a way that it didn't damage me, but allow me to do what I felt that I wanted to do to bring a sense of healing. Because for me, the feminine is about healing and restoration. It is restoration of wholeness. It's to really bring back that sense of balance. Norris Benet. Pat McCabe's life experience led her to a parallel conclusion. She's a Diné tribal member living in Taos, New Mexico, whose Navajo name means Woman Stands Shining. A mother, activist, artist, and writer, she speaks widely on such topics as the feminine design and sustainability and the science of right relations. In our culture, when the young woman has her first menses and before her second, there's a, a really big ceremony that takes place for her. And so we're not, it's not something you put on the calendar and plan in advance, right? It's, it happens. And when that happens, her whole community kind of has to come to a, an adjustment. 
And we might even say they have to come to a standstill for a little bit because there's so much that has to be prepared. And what I was told when I was in this preparation for my daughter, don't get everything ready, even though they gave me a list like this, right? <laughs> and they said, but don't get all of it because this is part of her becoming a woman. One, she needs to know that her community will come through for her. So let the community provide for her. And two, she needs to know that her prayers are going to be answered. And this is a part of the preparation for her to be a woman. So how's that for an orientation, huh? <laughs> a little different, a little different. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I really look to my own culture and indigenous culture in general as guideposts about true sustainability. These cultures knew how to live in health, harmony, happiness, relative health, harmony, and happiness for thousands of years in one place. You know, they have the science. So I pay attention, and I pay attention when they start talking about gender as well, you know. Our full name for our, our people means Holy Earth Surface Walker. So now I call myself Holy Earth Surface Walker, Life Bringer, Life Bearer. Right? That's a, that's a title. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> And so I say that we are the keepers of the cradle of life. We are the tenders of that. So as a woman, I am the keeper and tender of that. In Lakota culture, we say that the women are the backbone of the family. I also think this is why that womanhood ceremony is so elaborate and so profound, because she has to be gifted. She has to be imbued with that nourishment and nurturing to be able to be that backbone of the family. So these are the truths that I have to hold to, whether popular culture, government, even traditional men in my community, <laughs> whether they understand where my compass is pointed to or not. My compass is pointed towards thriving life, and that's what I think my accountability is to hold to in every situation, so I had no idea that was going to come out, but there it is. <laughs> Pat McCabe. The plan is life. Thriving life. More when we return. I'm Neil Harvey. You're listening to Leading from the Feminine, Keepers of the Cradle of Life, a one-hour special from the Bioneers.
To hear more from the guests featured in this program or to listen to other Bioneers radio shows and podcasts, please visit Bioneers.org. Who has most embodied both masculine and feminine qualities for you in your life? How do those models influence you? For Nikki Silvestri, Norris Benet, and Pat McCabe, it's all relatives. Nikki Silvestri. In my family, the feminine, very stereotypically, was embodied by my grandmother. She was a biracial woman who was born in 1922, which tells you something. My great-grandparents fled Louisiana to be together as a black and white couple and got married in Mexico because miscegenation was illegal and uh, had eight children together. My grandmother was one of them. And she was so soft by the time I met her. My mom continues to remind me that I met her when she was 60. So there was a lot of life that had happened before then. And her nickname was Red because of how fierce she was. And I was hella confused my whole life about that. But that, for me, the unity of that, right, that she was the embodiment of the safe container. I went to a meditation retreat a couple of years ago that was a loving-kindness retreat, and I couldn't actually tap into that for myself. I was saying the words over and over again, but I couldn't feel loving-kindness for myself. And then Sylvia Borstein walked into the room to do a Dharma talk, and because my grandmother was half black, half white, she looked Latina, Jewish, Puerto Rican, like you couldn't really tell what she was. So her and Sylvia Borstein look exactly the same. <laughs> and I, I had this flash of heat go through my body and I started shaking and crying because my grandmother walked into the room and I realized that she was my safe space to actually be vulnerable. And she passed away. So I haven't felt it in a while. And that is leading from the feminine when you can bring someone to their knees with your presence. Bring them to their tender place with your presence. And so then when it comes to leadership, the examples I have are actually not from my family because when I talk about the being and doing, you create the container so that you can do within it it makes me think about the unity of the masculine and the feminine when it shows up in one person, which for me brings up gender and sexuality. The two teachers that I had on my path to becoming an activist for black people that I felt the most connected to in my studies were James Baldwin and Bayard Rustin, just straight up. And I didn't even know for years that they were both gay. It just was like, this dude is on some real shit. <laughs> when I read James Baldwin's work and Bayard Rustin, who was behind the scenes, actually got the 200 groups to the Million Man March because you can't do that by talking. You got to do that by actually having the hard conversations and saying, I know you're throwing chairs. Please stop. Let's be a whole people. Put your aside for a second, just show, just be nice today, in DC, today. That was Bayard Rustin. So I feel like the leading from the feminine 
that is two spirit people who hold both within them, who can be and do and flip back and forth depending on what's needed, has been a teacher for me. It's been an incredible teacher for me. And I need that because I've spent years putting my masculine on a leash and saying dance when I needed him to do something in the world. And I've spent time putting my feminine in a closet and saying, shut the hell up because it's not safe for you to be out there. And when you speak, people look at me funny. So one's been on a leash, one's been in a closet and they haven't met each other yet. I'm still on that journey. And I learned from my teachers and I'm grateful for them. I actually have two models for me. Dominican poet Norris Benet. And I typically used to think there was one that was my auntie Tita Tina who actually hold me since I born. But her sister, my grandmother, even when they both have a very parallel journey, my auntie didn't marry, didn't have children, and dedicated to the spiritual life to be the medicine woman of the community, to be a servant. And my grandmother who married, had my mother and her sister and other kids, but that too, have a different kind of spiritual life. And through the years, she died when she was 92 years old. She really became a Zen teacher for me because she was so sharp and clear that it was amazing. Her last 10 years, she always say, I'm here waiting for the big moment to come, death. So I have a great relationship with both of them. But my primary relationship began with my auntie Titatina because she was the one who will instruct us spiritually. And her role was a very unique role because she actually lived between the world. She was the woman who people who die will come into her dreams and ask her to do the dutiful thing that they couldn't do. So she typically will be going to certain place, going to meet somebody, bringing the name of the child who born because the father who died wanted that name. So she lived between the world. And you know, that was a really very peculiar uh, kind of existence to, to be with someone who, who navigate that water. So I was initiated by her, and she basically is the foundation of my spiritual life. Even though I have a spiritual teachers who I'm very grateful, she is the one who really taught me what it's like to be a spiritual being, to be someone who first check in, who first die within oneself to bring anything for. So Meeting with her is the first time that I meet someone who her presence was overflowing. Everyone wanted Tatina coming to their house because when she arrived, everything will go into order 
doesn't matter how your family were fighting, who were doing who, the father, she come and sit down and she just was in a rocking chair and in a matter of hours, everything was in harmony. <laughs> so her presence was something that everybody wanted. She was a wild woman at the same time. In Titatina house, anything could happen. <laughs> anything, whatever you can imagine you could do. So being with her was a sense of peace, welcoming, well-being, fully alive. It was a woman who danced, who not only prayed three times per day, but she danced and she was wild. Happiness was for her one of the most important ingredients of being alive. My whole work in the world has been working with women to bring out that wild, joyful, beautiful aspect of themselves. With music and dance, because that is what my culture is about, you learn to dance since you are a child, has been for me the pathway to connect with women and to bring that sense of leadership that it doesn't need that much direction but it allowed the body, the, the inner wisdom, to really reveal what is it that I'm looking for? What is it that I need now? How can I move through life like a snake? So that you, you know, the path can be crooked, you know, you have up and down, nothing is straight. But allow women and people, not just women, but men as well, to find out what are they? at the very core of their being, really. Not just what they learn and what have been taught to them, but what is it that is at the core of my heart that want to burst? And for me, that is what leading from the feminine has been, to unleash the capacity to live from the heart, to move from the heart, to love. To talk about feminine leadership is to talk about partial leadership. It's the feminine and masculine attending to their, well, what I'll call thriving life design. When they're both attending to that and they have a functional polarity, then we're in a leadership that is in alignment with my moral compass. And I can give everybody peace. Pat McCabe found that her models of embodying masculine and feminine qualities evolved over the course of her life. What I realized is that I started out kind of looking around and saying, the power's not with the ladies, the power's with the men. So I was keeping an eye on them. Not to marry one, but to, to be one, really. <laughs> At least in terms of the power game. And... Um, my grandmother was a remarkable, remarkable woman. My, my grandparents on both sides of my family and then my parents were all raised in the Dutch Christian Reform Missionary Schools. But what was remarkable about my grandmother was she actually really loved being there. She loved the skills that they taught her. They taught her all kinds of crazy stuff. They taught her how to tat. Uh, they taught her, you know, like all these really strange European kind of things. But she really got into it, and she was very good at it. 
And um, so I have like these incredible like lace doily things that she made and you know, um, they're precious to me because her hands touched them, you know. And so the, the, the missionaries were coming out from Grand Rapids and uh, she would teach the medical staff to ride horseback. And she would uh, make house calls all over the reservation on horseback with these doctors. I found that out about her later and that's very appealing to me to be all of that, you know. One thing that I remember about her when I was young was everywhere we went, in Gallup, New Mexico, and Albuquerque, but we'd go so many places, and people would see her, and when they would see my grandma, they would tear up at the sight of her. They would be saying to her, you are such a good woman. You are such a good woman. And so my grandma raised me from the time I was four months old. She lived in our house with my mom and dad until I was nine, and so I was around this all the time. So I got to have this sense of what it felt like, and she was completely colorblind, not in the sense of race. She welcomed everybody, which, you know, especially for her in that time, was, was really remarkable. So I, I kind of had a beginning place of that. I think um, when I finally decided that I needed to look into what this whole being a woman thing was all about, <laughs> instead of trying to be a woman man in power, I began to look at what may be known as the feminine face of God. And so I was actively praying to feel the feminine aspect of divinity. And boy, oh boy, did I get answered. Like they were just waiting. I thought you'd never ask, you know, and, um, and so when those entities began to make themselves known to me, I think that's really been my guide for leadership. One thing that I loved about meeting this one particular entity was she's always portrayed in white buckskin, and she's looking very peaceful, you know, like in paintings of her and stuff, but when I met her, she was skinny dipping in this pond, and I remember she got out, and she was walking up, and just all of her beautiful woman grace, uh, light, sensuality, animal, all of it was just right in front of me, and I just never expected to see her that way, and it, it gave me permission it gave me permission, you know. I was saying to this one friend of mine, I said, you know, I always thought of her, you know, kind of like she was like the Virgin Mary. And this lady said, oh, well, then you don't know Mary either. You know? <laughs> so, uh, so, <laughs> so these spirit entities that show themselves to me, they're, they're very practical, they're very sensual, they take care of business. They're not afraid to go in anywhere and do anything, actually. And I think, that, I think again, that's kind of where that whole feeling of that moral compass goes to, because sometimes I'm the embodied messenger for them. And the only reason that I could ever do that is because they're teaching me and they're showing me and they're like, no, you go and you'll see what happens. They're definitely all about speaking truth in power to power to pseudo power <laughs> so 
So I think that's definitely been um, the training for me, yeah. yeah. I'm very glad that you brought that aspect to of the deity because in every culture that I had traveled or studied in my own culture, at the center of the leading of the feminine is this deity, is this virgin, is this goddess, is this female aspect of, of uh, God, if you wanted to call that way, that is, is always present. It's like that is that force that is a great mother that comes through spiritually is a very um, important and essential ingredient of this leading from the feminine, at least for, for myself. Our deep dive into the heart of the feminine with Pat McCabe, Nikki Silvestri, and Norris Benet continues when we return. To hear more from the guests featured in this program or to listen to other Bioneers radio shows and podcasts, please visit Bioneers.org. What obstacles have you encountered when you lead from the feminine? Has your personal biography or cultural background restricted you or helped you? How have you overcome these obstacles? Once again, these three women found nature and nurture crossing paths with culture. Again, Nikki Silvestri, co-founder and CEO of Silvestri Strategies. Yeah. <laughs> it's about to get real. Okay. My heart started pounding when you asked me that question. I've noticed how I struggle sometimes in mixed crowds to talk about the dark side of African-American culture because I'm concerned about how we will be held. And because the damage that's done when someone's shadow is being shown and they're not held in generosity is really deep. And that black men are kind of the shadow for the entire country right now. So I'm just gonna name that and we'll see what happens. Culturally, I think the masculine and the feminine have been held the best way that they can be. And I have encountered myself that softness and tenderness and vulnerability in general is seen as unsafe within African-American culture, in my experience, to the point that male-presenting individuals who embody both feminine and masculine tendencies and qualities are shunned. Women who present as both masculine and feminine tend toward the masculine a lot of times. And I have, in my family, 
have found that there is an acknowledgement that vulnerability and tenderness and the container that is the feminine is really necessary. And there's fear of being taken advantage of and fear of being violated. So it's been a struggle. And I think when it comes to our activism and our work in the world, that has really shown itself. I have a master's degree in African-American studies, and one of the things that, I mean, I think everybody who gets a master's in African-American studies studies the black power movement. And the way to look at civil rights to black nationalism from the 60s and the 70s from the perspective of masculine and feminine is really interesting because the civil rights movement was very clearly run by women. They put men in front as a strategy, and they were, like, super clear about it. Like, scan the crowd, who can talk, who can be pretty and talk? Him. Train him. Does he want to? No. Do we care? No. Let's train him. Do it. Did we want to wipe your ass when you were a baby? Half the time. No. We did it. Thus, you will not do something for us. And it was just this very clear, like, when the grandmamas ask you to do something, you do it. You just do it. And you also know, because when grandmothers ask you to do something, when you're hungry, they feed you. When you're actually on your knees, they will take you to their bosom and say, I love you, you got this. There's a safety created by the real grandmama energy. And then black nationalism became hella masculine to the point where there was domestic abuse and a real, like, just abuse, abuse of a lot of women. And there were women leaders in black nationalism, absolutely. But just between the bigger organizations, there was a lot of masculine domination. I think that there is a returning right now. The flack that Black Lives Matter was started by women, queer women. Just this sense of fierce love that they started it with. Our bodies are being broken apart because of a generation's held belief that black bodies are for the benefit of America and to be used or not as America sees fit. And the way to interrupt that pattern is to love and to say that we matter. So I feel like there is a turning of the wheel happening right now. And it is a beautiful turning of the wheel. So the obstacle, I think, and what, what is still being fought through is our own demons. Mm. Us being able to come to each other. Because to be clear, I mean, one of the things I also really recognize this year is that my relationships with black women have been very, very, very hard my entire life. My friendships, my family, I felt the most damaged and the most harmed by black women in my life. Because black women, as an archetype, when I encounter a black woman, there is a part of me that just drops to my knees immediately and is like, love me. Because that's what black women inspire in me. This fierce love and vulnerability and tenderness and such deep fear of being harmed that I will actually hurt first and act like a fool in those relationships. And I've had to reconcile that for myself. And it's come out of my work, it's come out of my personal relationships, it's everywhere. And that's mine. 
to carry, and that's mine to work through. It's not theirs, it's mine. And the more that we as a people can untangle what is ours and also be very clear about boundaries when it comes to actually others can't enter our space until we reconcile some of this, and that's okay to say, we're not being separatist, we're not being segregationist, we're saying this is what we need to be safe so that you can be safe when you interact with us, so that we can be safe when we interact with you. That's actually more than okay, that's responsible. And that's what healing looks like. Nikki Silvestri. For Norris Benet, growing up in the Dominican Republic, a combination of geography and culture posed serious obstacles. Being exposed to two particular culture that live in this country, I know a Latino because Latino doesn't exist. It's a name that is given to 21 countries. Okay, I'm Dominican. I am a mix of native Indian Tainos, African slave, and European. And I cannot talk for, you know, for all the Latinos, impossible. My tiny, tiny, tiny island is very tiny. So, <laughs> but I will say that my encounter with the conditioning introjected patriarchy value in my psyche, having my obstruction, to coming from a 35 years dictatorship where the man is the God, it permeates everything, totally. It's like you cannot escape of having that value system in your psyche. So I left the country. I ran away as soon as I could to be able to find another way to operate in the world and more information. When you come from an island, you're an islander. Everything is happening everywhere, but you are isolated. It's water everywhere. So for me, was to leave the country and begin to, to meet other cultures, to find out how ancient culture happened to come to Mexico to be able to study with shamanic culture to begin to really reconnect this group of women, this matriarchy kind of nurturing that I get in my childhood in another location, how that happened. And I was very lucky because I found a lot of teaching and a lot of holding as a way of living that was not an isolated village where I come from. So my path has been basically a path of self-discovery and self-healing. That has been it. My whole life, I have been looking how the damage that you get under a patriarchal system can get transformed. And it's a life journey. It's a life process. It's never finished, never end, never perfect. It's always in the go. I discovered that women were, for me, the way how I could be in the world, everywhere. And in this country particular, 
which I didn't believe that have a heart. I didn't believe that this culture could embrace me. I was very afraid to come here. But women here were the ones who opened the door, were the ones who really told me, come in, girl. We, you, I know you don't speak well English. You have an accent. We understand that, but come in. And it was both. It was white women and African-American women. Both race were able to open a place for me to begin to really see myself in another light since I left my country. I am not anymore a Dominican either because the Dominican that I grew up doesn't exist any longer. I am in the vacuum. I am not this and I know that. And it's very challenging. At the same time, it gives me the privilege to be able to bridge everywhere because I don't belong anywhere, really, truthfully. And have to do too with the touching the spiritual place within oneself, when you begin to realize that is not where you come from or where you belong in the land that makes you who you are, but who you are in your heart. So that experience that she shared about stopping is imagine that you are going 100 you know, per hour in your car and you begin to put the brake. It takes years before you really can totally stop. And for me, going into the spiritual path for seven years into silent and silent retreat was the one who gave me the ground to come out again and work in the world from a totally different place that's not about accomplishing, but it's about the spider web to create this interconnection that, like the spider web, is very, you know, hidden, but it connects one thing to another energetically. You cannot even see it, but you can actually see that a whole community can actually begin to go in another direction just by your presence of putting this little thing here and there. You're not going to see your name in the newspaper, no. You're not going to have this whole thing but you know deeper in your heart that that leading from that place is very humble. It's very tiny. It's small, like a tiny wildflower. But you stop when you're walking in the wilderness and you see the tiny small flower. You have to stop and look at it and your heart get enlightened by that. That's how I see it. To the women, we say you must move and speak and act with the authority of the mother. For Navajo Pat McCabe, she found the cultural obstacles also ran deep, from the personal to the transpersonal. This is um, some words from some of the relatives from the Sierra Nevadas in Colombia. The medicine people live in the caves for many years. They're part of the four ventricles of the heart of the world. So when they said it, I was like, 
it just rang like a gong inside of me, you know. And it's been coming from other directions as well about the feminine. My clan grandfather said to me about eight years ago, he said, I've been having visions and they've been telling me that the women need to begin to lead the ceremonies and the men need to begin to rem remember how to be their warriors while they do this. Very traditional Diné man. And recently he sought out some ceremonial help from me and, and it was so beautiful because he, he spoke about why he did that. He said that he, you know, that I travel a lot and that I'm involved with different cultures and he says you're always putting the pieces together and you never stop processing. And, um, and he said I needed to be in the ground where that kind of cross-pollination, I guess you could say, is arising to bring back to a singular tradition that he practices, which is our, our people's way, Diné way. That's a preface to the obstacle. Recently, I had a very, very strong experience. It came as such a surprise to me. I never would have guessed that this was what was needed. I started having some visions about the witch hunts in Europe. They were recurring. They began to actually really take over my, my conscious world. It was getting kind of problematic. Through that process of watching the trials, watching the, the institutions that had been erected towards so-called justice, the righteousness, the courts, and when I could feel myself being drugged before that court, I knew there wasn't a chance at all of me having any justice as a woman. All of the tearing of the fabric of, of the families, because a, a family member would turn in another family member to save their own child. So I went through this really profound period of oh, shame, rage, terror, and just feeling it in my body. And and the whole time what was being sung, there was like this chorus going on and it, and it was telling me, it's never gonna serve you or life or light or love to see this in terms of men versus women. But what happened in that process was I got stripped entirely of my self-esteem and my self-confidence. Just at the sight and the memory, you know, it was like whew, gone. I didn't even know that was possible for that to happen to me at this point. And the other horror of it was to walk around this world with like these goggles on and I was seeing the witches being burned at the stake everywhere in this modern world. And I was saying, we're still burning the witches at the stake and now we don't even leave a mark. And the women are burning each other at the stake and the women are burning themselves at the stake. I bring that up because what became very clear to me about this is that the way it was described to me was this is an archetypal wounding of humanity. It crosses into many cultures. I had no idea that that was running inside of me. It's like a cellular memory. And so I realize now that it was running during my marriage. 
it's been running in my workplace, you know, all of that. And so what I feel like is really being asked of me is I have to reconcile completely my rage and my belief in a war between the masculine and the feminine, between the men and the women. That's what's being asked of me. It has to be complete because it's a deception. Many, many devices have been used on the five-fingered ones to create the illusion of separation, but none has been more effective or longer running than the illusion of the war between the men and the women and the masculine and the feminine. The design is for these two aspects to work in functional polarity. And when we have that, then we have life. But now the goggles that I'm seeing the world with, without that burden, without that schism, without that schizophrenia running, it's powerful and I have such compassion for the women and I have even probably more compassion for the men at this point. Yeah. We've both been had, basically. And so I want to name that obstacle for us because I think that it's going to take some collective work on probably everybody's part to address that. In order for me to assume that authority, you must move and speak and act with the authority of the mother. In order for me to assume that authority, I have to reconcile that. And if I don't reconcile that, my attempts at assuming that authority is gonna create war. Pat McCabe, Norris Benet, and Nikki Silvestri. Recorded live at a Bioneers conference, reconciling the archetypal wound of humanity by leading from the feminine and acting from the heart. Leading from the feminine, keepers of the cradle of life. Explore more Bioneers radio programs, podcasts, and videos online at Bioneers.org. For information on attending the National Bioneers Conference and Bioneers events in your area, please visit Bioneers.org or call 1-877-BIONEER. Leading from the Feminine, Keepers of the Cradle of Life is a production of Bioneers and Collective Heritage Institute. Executive Producer, Kenny Ausubel. Written by Kenny Ausubel. Senior Producer and Station Relations, Stephanie Welch. Host and Consulting Producer, Neil Harvey. Program Engineer, Emily Harris. Our theme music is co-written by the Baca Forest people of Cameroon and Baca Beyond from the album East to West. All royalties from Baca compositions and performances go to the Baca Forest people through the charity Global Music Exchange. Find out more at globalmusicexchange.org. 
Additional music was made available by Jamie Sieber at jamiesieber.com and by Sounds True at soundstrue.com. For more music information, please visit bioneers.org. The opinions expressed in this Bioneers radio special are those of the presenters and are not necessarily those of Bioneers and Collective Heritage Institute, the underwriters, or this radio station. My name is Neil Harvey. Thank you for listening. I invite you to join the Bioneers in inspiring a shift to live on Earth in ways that honor the web of life, each other, and future generations. This is program number 1416. This program was made possible in part by Organic Valley's pasture-raised organic dairy products, bringing the good from our family farmers to your table at organicvalley.coop. Funding also provided by a grant from the Park Foundation, dedicated to heightening public awareness of critical issues, and by the generous support of listeners like you.